Welcome to episode number 36 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we go to Namibia and Northern Australia. Epic flying adventures that should be on the bucket list of every serious soaring pilot. We will hear firsthand what it's like to fly over the Kalahari and what it's like to chase the morning glory wave clouds over Northern Queensland. Episode number 36 of The Thermal is now ready to launch. Namibia is one of those gliding destinations that most of us can only dream of. Cloud bases of over 10,000 feet and flights of 1,000 kilometers or better are common. An average day is a 500-kilometer flight. York Steeper is the reigning Canadian national champion and is a pal from my former gliding club in Ontario. York is now in Namibia and doing what he loves to do, fly high-performance ships for long distances. I've reached York in Kiripatib, Namibia. Hello, Jörg. Uh, thanks for chatting with me. Hi, Harry. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, pleasure to be there. So you were flying earlier today. Talk to me about the conditions. What was it like? Yes, I had a, we had a great flight. Um, say we because I flew with my brother in an Arcus M mm -hmm. uh, self-launcher. And actually, we just landed about two hours ago at 7.30 here, was, which is exactly sunset. Um, we did thousand kilometers today, which is nice. Uh, <laughs> conditions were really good. Um, we had um, uh, we've, we started out in blue conditions, going uh, going about a thousand meters, like three thousand feet AGL, working slowly towards the east until we hit the the queues, and then uh, during the good time of the day, uh, so after one o'clock. Cloud base was uh, at first at about four and a half thousand meters and then later at 5,000 meters. So a good 15, 16,000 feet and wow. really good cruising, nice cloud streets. So um, we, we just sort of ran, ran these cloud streets back and forth and uh, no worries, right? It was just, just beautiful. And a thousand K and, today. Uh, I mean, you say it like it's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, in, in past visits here, we seem to be flying, and this is a thousand k OLC for the OLC. Mm -hmm. so it was not a declared thousand k task. But in past uh, visits here, we, we seem to be flying a thousand k every second day. This time, um, this was the first time we actually flew a thousand k, but it was nice. Mm -hmm. so the weather is um, this the, this year. The weather isn't as strong as it was in the past. But we had today. Today was good. We saw. Um, I think uh, saw we saw one thermal with about fourteen knots. Sustained uh, on the average, right? Um, in general, uh, the lift today was after after. I mean, in the morning was a little weaker, but then uh, after twelve o'clock, it was sort of um, between. We would take four knot thermals sometimes, but uh, mostly um, mostly five, six, seven, eight knot thermals. Uh, that was that was sort of what we took to to get up. And that makes you fast. So you're, describe the sky to me, what you're seeing there in Namibia, and how it's different from your normal stomping grounds in southern Ontario. What, put me in the cockpit. Um, well, first of all, you're usually fairly high with high cloud bases. And then uh, on a really good day, you have queues in every direction, right? Mm -hmm. high, high queues. Um, sometimes they overdevelop and, and, and start showers or thunderstorms. This is when you have to watch it. 
we've had days where we had to navigate around uh, uh, pretty significant weather. Uh, today, this was not a factor. Today was just clear sailing in every direction almost. And um, you look down, it's a, it's a long ways down. The country is really empty. There's very, uh, we're flying over the Kalahari. Mm-hmm. And there's very little in terms of settlements or cities and towns. And it is unfortunately also not very landable. So all the gliders that fly here are self-launchers. But even with a self-launcher, you need to have, when you get down to about 1,500 feet above ground, 500 meters, um, and you want to pull the engine, you have to have a place below you, beneath you, where you can land. Otherwise, as soon as the engine comes out, the glider um, is like pulling the dive brakes, right? Right, right. And if it then doesn't work, if it doesn't start, right? <laughs> Uh, you can't go far anymore, so you have to have a place uh, to land uh, ready there. You cannot, uh, with the engine out and not working, you cannot go looking for a place to land. So you're you're so, obviously uh, a, a pilot that takes safety seriously. Do you, you know the the possibility exists that the engine won't start? So do you carry survival gear with you? What what happens if the engine doesn't start and you're 500k from base? Yeah, we have, um, and this has happened, actually, we, we have survival gear, we have definitely water, we have also water we carry on our bodies in case we have to bail out, mm-hmm. so we are not completely without water when we land, and um, we have uh, spots, uh, so that's a satellite um, right. messaging system where you can say, oh, I need help, right, you can... You can send out uh, pre-recorded messages, uh, and then you can also, it has an SOS button where you actually um, uh, send the signals to the to the search and rescue people. So you've got that um, strapped so onto, your, your, onto your body somehow, safely on your yeah. parachute? Yeah, the, 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 spot, the spot is strapped on our parachute, and there's also an um, emergency locator beacon. Uh, also on the on the parachute, so we have we have both. Hmm. Now, we can set the the beacon off, and uh, then they can sort of home in on us. Now, I, last question on the survival stuff over there. I mean, obviously, a different part of the world, but you know, lions and that sort of stuff, predators that would probably consider you a snack. How <laughs> do you have anything for that in case you land out? Like a lion stick? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, lion spray. No. I don't know. In uh, in Namibia, uh, the farm is the, the land is pretty much farmland, and there are I mean there may be lions, but very few. However, we also fly over into Botswana, and they say, well, in Botswana, the lions are looking up when you're low, <laughs> and uh, they say basically if you land somewhere, uh, stay in the airplane, don't get out of the airplane. Right. They also say. If lions are around, good news, there's water nearby. <laughs> right, 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 right. If there's no lions, there's no water. Now, you, you touched and, on the geography uh, earlier. Is it a, a semi-arid desert? Is is that what it looks like from all those wildlife documentaries I've seen? Yeah, yeah. the Kalahari is a, is basically a dry savanna. So there is, there is stuff growing on it, little trees and... Uh, and sort of grass, uh, little bushes and that kind of stuff. A little bit like um, so the, the, the western U.S. with, uh, with the sagebrush and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. It's not completely bare. And, and um, it's being farmed. Uh, 
people have goats and these things and i mean you probably need 10 acres to feed one goat but um that's uh, it's certainly um, animals can live off what grows there and this year actually i remember one flight where my nephew i was flying with my nephew remarked uh, he looked down and says i've never seen the kalahari so green hmm. it's uh, they must have had quite a bit of rain so it is actually in in areas quite green now, talk to me a bit about the base that you're flying out of. What, what's the name of the, the organization or the club you're at, and how, how does that all work? It's it's not a club. It's a commercial operation. Mm-hmm. There is uh, four commercial operations in in Namibia. The oldest one and the biggest one is uh, Bitterwasser, well-known. Mm-hmm. And I'm flying out of a place called uh, Kiripotip. Okay. And it has room for about um, 26 pilots and uh, airplanes. They are being brought in by uh, they are sh- shipped down from Europe in or in November, early November. And uh, so there we have top of the line airplanes there, Arcosis. Um, some of them really new. Mm-hmm. And um, in uh, in at the end of the season, which is end of January, they, they go back to Europe. They're being loaded up in containers and go back to Europe. Wow. And uh, it's basically the, the the base is a farm. Uh, it's it's uh, what's what's called sort of a guest farm. The, they have they have room for guests. They have the staff to for guests. They have a restaurant. And um, what makes this particular farm different? It has uh, two very big runways. It has uh, two fifteen hundred meter like uh, runways, uh, forty five hundred feet, one east west, one north south, and. Um, and so it's a, it's an ideal base to launch uh, these gliders. Um, they're they're pretty heavy, and we are also the d- the density altitude is fairly high here. Um, the the ground level is uh, about forty five hundred feet. Okay. And then with uh, you add the heat, so the density altitude is about maybe six seven thousand feet. So the engines are maybe half, well, a little better than than half the normal performance, the sea level performance. So so. Typically, we need the entire runway to get a fully loaded Arcos off, off the ground safely. Right, right. Well, it's heavy, right? The two of you, water and fuel, that, that adds up, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, the motor, the engine. So we are, um, we are typically when we fly, we are at a wing loading of uh, 50 um, kilograms per square meter, uh, which is basically at gross weight. So right. is, when my brother and I fly, um, there's there's no room or very little room for water in the Arcos, maybe another 20, 30 liters. Now, now, I know your brother's been flying for a long time, as you have. Do you guys just do you share the flying or does somebody take each flight? How do you do that? Uh, we, we share the flying. So we, we switch control back and forth. Uh, we don't have a regime in the past. What we did was we sort of, everybody flew one cycle. Mm-hmm. whereby the cycle starts um, at the top of the thermal and then the person flies, 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 flies until it becomes time to thermal again. And this could be 80 kilometers down the road, right? Mm-hmm. And thermals right up to cloud base again and then hands over control to the to the other person. But um, this year we didn't really have a regime. We just flew along and um, every once in a while one per- the, the pilot flying says to the other one, well, we want to fly a little, and we, we then change over. You know, it's kind of nice. It allows you to have lunch, enjoy the scenery a little bit, and not be, be constantly on the entire time. 
Yes, yeah, no, it's it's very true. We, uh, today was a long flight. I think we flew for eight hours, and so I can't really see myself do this in a single seater. Mm-hmm. And it's much better, like if you, if you want to eat something, drink something, take a photo. If if you if you don't have to fly, right? You right. Also for strategic planning. So typically, the pilot non-flying is the planner, and mm-hmm. he checks out turn points, directions, and and next leg where are we going to go what's the time can we make it back etc cetera, etc cetera. now i imagine the experience <laughs> level and flying skill uh required to fly out there has to be pretty high right the, the 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 people renting you those gliders must have high standards um they do they do and um and also the the government we actually just had a government inspection here at the airport um they also keep a pretty close eye on on what's happening um, I think the minimum what they're requiring is 500 glider hours, like solo hours. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, every glider, there's no tow planes here. So all gliders are self-launchers. Uh-huh. You have to have a self-launch endorsement. Right. And to some degree, they can actually, if you, if you don't have that, um, they, can, they can teach you. So they, they can take some lessons here. Mm-hmm. Uh, another good way of getting into it, they have a program calling called um, Flying with the Champions. So these are the champions. These are busy world-level pilots, and they volunteer to fly with people. And they, so you put up a champion in, in the back seat and use it in the front, front seat. The champion can do the takeoff. He has, the, he has all the licenses and endorsements he needs. Mm-hmm. And he teaches you to be a champion, basically. Uh-huh. So it teaches you how to fly fast and uh, far and all these things. So money aside, if somebody like me wanted to go there, how would you do that? You just get in touch with the organization there and, and, and put in an application? Yeah, yeah you get in, get in touch. <clears throat> and basically you need to have what has to line up is a room when they are quite limited mm-hmm. and an airplane that's also limited. Right. So the best time to <coughs> excuse me, the best time to to get started for flying in November or December is to in, in January already. Okay. And uh, and to talk to the people who organize this, and uh, you can talk to the people here in Kiripatib, or you can contact somebody who organizes things in in Bitabasa and then get set up. Right. Now, I imagine, you know, people are going to be wondering about this as well. This this isn't for the faint of heart, you know, when it comes to paying for this because you've got to travel from Canada, you've got to pay for accommodation, you've got to pay for the... I mean, this isn't a, a cheap little holiday. This is expensive, yeah? Um, that's right, yeah. Um, the room and board, <clears throat> you'd think um, somewhere on a farm in Namibia is cheap, but it is not. <laughs> yeah, but it's I mean it's it's not just the room. You get three meals a day and the excellent meals and so on. And um, I mean it's you know, a commercial rent. operation. They have to make yeah. money, right? Mm-hmm. So fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then renting and so the, the the farm provides basically all the room and board and and so on. And then the the different operation is the airplanes. They're mm-hmm. basically European based, and they they rent you the airplane and. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think we're paying about 400 euros a day for the Arcos. But if you consider that an, an Arcos is worth somewhere around $350,000, uh, 350,000 euros, yeah. um, it is actually not all that expensive. Yeah. 
no, per hour, that's actually pretty reasonable. And to think that they have to ship these things back and forth from Europe down to Namibia, then actually, I'm, I'm surprised it actually seems reasonable to me, that price. Yeah, yeah, it's it is quite reasonable. I, I find I find personally, of course, it adds up. We we have the Arcos uh, for twenty one days, mm-hmm. but share it with three people. So typically, what we do, uh, I'm here with my brother and his son, my nephew. Yeah. And so with this, if three people sharing a two seater, you get every second day. Um, you fly for two days, and then you get a day off, and that's perfect because. Yeah. You just cannot fly every day. Right. Even though you'd it's, want to, uh, you can't. I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 I mean, at least you can. I mean, you can fly every day for a few hours. But if you fly big flights, like eight hours, seven, That's eight hours, exhausting. It, it wears you. Yeah. It's exhausting. So I, I really liked my off days. Yeah. So, Jorg, you, you mentioned to me in an email that you're, you're leaving on Saturday. So you've got a, what, two, two more flying days left. How, how's the forecast looking? Do you think you're going to be able to bag another 1,000-kilometer flight? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's um, the, At least for Friday, the uh, tomorrow, is it looks pretty good. Saturday, I'm not so sure yet. So we have two two flying days. Yeah, it's, um, it's encouraging, definitely. <laughs> we had a few days where it was just, uh, where it was fairly cool, actually. People <coughs> showed up in the morning uh, with fleece jackets and so and um, and then it was just it was blue and the thermals were not very high so then it's 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 tough to I mean we still flew but uh, you can't really do big tasks yes no, and, nobody uh, nobody really likes the blue days no no it's uh, particularly I mean yeah we can fly in the blue if it goes high but if blue and low is tough yeah, yeah over yeah. fairly unlandable terrain yeah, so um, I'm I'm looking forward to two more flying days. I mean, we are a bit. Uh, my nephew has left, so it's just my brother and myself now, and we're flying every day. So if we have the energy, um, we can possibly do another thousand k. But I'm I'm glad we got this one in. This was uh, kind of nice, but it was a was a long flight. We landed uh, at seven thirty, right at sunset, huh. and um, then I had a quick dinner, and um, your phone call came along. <laughs> Well, Jorg, I, I got to say, I'm very jealous. I'm gonna, you know, this is obviously my bucket list. I'll, I'll have to mention to my wife that there's a, a nice ranch that uh, you know, spouses can stay in and enjoy that that part of the world. So, with with a bit of luck in a couple of years, I'll be able to uh, get down there as well at some point. Yes, yes, do this. It's certainly um, it's it's a great experience. And there's uh, Namibia is a beautiful country, and um, there's. Uh, but my brother's wife on stitch, she went on a, on a safari there on a tour of the north of the country. Really nice. Mm. She really enjoyed that. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a fairly safe country. Um, of course, in Windhoek, you get the typical city crime or so, but out in the country, it's very nice. People are nice. Well, so it uh, sounds like you're having nice. a fabulous trip and uh, enjoy it while you can because you're going to be heading back to the snow and ice pretty soon. <laughs> yes, yes, I will. Okay. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you. All right, Jorg, it's been great. Thank you, and look forward to uh, seeing you again uh, next year at some point. Okay, very well. Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye. Jorg Stieber spoke to me earlier in December from Kiripatib, Namibia. Check out Jorg on the OLC to see some of his flights there, and I'll post some of his photos on the Thermals Facebook page.
What do most of the record-breaking pilots you hear on the thermal have in common? Almost all of them use SkySight, the fabulous weather app designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more about how this weather app works, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number seven. For listeners of the thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. From late September to early November, there's a yearly glider pilot migration where the final destination is the Gulf of Carpentaria in northern Australia. Pilots from around the world gather here to fly a unique meteorological phenomenon known as the morning glory, essentially spectacular-looking bands of low-level wave clouds. It's the only known location where the morning glory can be predicted and observed regularly due to the combination of land and sea in the area. While listening to this interview, look up morning glory clouds in Australia and you'll get an idea of what these wave clouds look like. James Cooper is one of those migratory glider pilots who travel to fly the morning glory. To top off his 40-year gliding career, he recently made the trek from Western Australia to Burketown, Queensland to wave soar the morning glory, a return trip of some 8,000 kilometers. For James, This year was a special visit because after four decades of gliding, this is going to be his final year in the cockpit. I've reached James in Perth, Western Australia. Hello, James. Uh, Put put me in the cockpit. What's it like to fly this particular type of wave? Yeah, it's it's really quite an amazing um, weather phenomenon. Um, Because you've never seen anything like that anywhere in the world, when you sit on it, and see this long tube of clouds stretching as far as the eye can see um, over um, flatlands of northern Australia. It's uh, yeah, totally flat because it's flooded during the uh, summer period. And then you turn around and you go the other way and you see this same cloud stretching as far as the eye can see. It's just an amazing feeling. Um, the first video I had when I, I actually got onto the uh, front of the glory, there was a kind of yee-haw, and it wasn't because I was on uh, film or anything. It was just the glory of being there. I've seen the pictures, and I find it staggeringly beautiful. And there's not just one wave cloud, but numerous, right, in, in sequence to each other. That, that's correct. I mean, sometimes you'll just get one. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you'll get multiple ones that are probably about 10k apart and then there's others which I've uh, not seen where they're literally rolling within you know a, probably a kilometer or so of each other coming in one after the other after the other hmm. um, every, every morning glory is different huh. you speak to the guys who've flown it regularly but always it's spectacular now is it out over the water as well? Yeah, it can be. Um, I I don't go and fly the ones that are way out over the water. Um, it's probably a smart decision. Will, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I, I wear a life jacket, but you know, there's crocodiles and sharks down there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even, even water the crocodiles. Land. Yeah. 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 So keep keep clear from that. And there's all sorts of nasty things in uh, northern Australia. 
well, all of all of Australia, but we don't go have AK thirty sevens. But uh, yeah, um, but so yeah, it's not it, it's not you. You're flying the Morning Glory along the shoreline, or I'm trying to get an idea of the ge- geography. Yeah, so so probably put the geography. So you've you've got Australia in the the northeast. You've got the peninsula of Queensland, and then just to the west of the peninsula, you've got the Gulf of Carpentaria. Right, which looks like a big shark uh, bite. Uh, yes, that's right. Right now, in the middle of the south of the Gulf of Carpentario, uh, so if you do middle in terms of east west, thirty yeah. k uh, to the south, there's this little town called Burketown. Um, really lovely little town, and it's got a, a decent airstrip on it. And we'll launch out of there, uh, and we'll fly to the north now. Hopefully, you'll get the clouds just on the coast. Um, but sometimes you can see it further out into the um, into the Gulf. And if you want to go out and uh, buy it there, good luck. But um, yeah. I don't trust my engine enough to uh, risk my life flying out over the sea. So you, are you guys uh, self-launching motor gliders or do you have a tow plane out there? Oh. How's no, there's no tow plane. It's too far to uh, travel to take a tow plane, and probably it would be um, a, a bit awkward because there's quite a few people come, and you've got to uh, get them off the apron, launch next one, next one, next one, and if you had tow operations, it would slow everyone down. Right. Because, uh, you what you you basically launch as soon as you're legally allowed to fly in the morning and um, try and get out there. For the short period of time that the cloud lasts. Okay, so that's so it is called the morning glory for a reason. Uh, yes, it's it is in the morning. Um, it, I, I think uh, the reason that it happens so early in the morning is because if it were any later, the air's dried out too much and the phenomenon doesn't occur. If you think when we're flying gliders, the cloud base is thousands of feet above the ground where you've had the ability to cool the air sufficient to get condensation. The lift uh, for the morning glory, it may be, I don't know, a thousand foot or something like that. So if the humidity isn't very near 100%, um, you're not going to get the cloud uh, form. Right. Uh, And therefore, if it's not first thing in the morning... Um, you're not going to get it. I mean, one of the the pub tests is this is due on your uh, uh, glass of uh, beer in the morning, in the evening. <laughs> yeah. Then you might get the morning glory tomorrow. Right. Uh, I, I find Windy is a better program to use, and uh, Matthew Scutter at SkySight has developed his program to detect it, and he switches it on on SkySight just uh, for the couple of months. Right. Yeah, Matt, Matthew's been on the show a couple of times. Right, yeah, yeah, great bit of software. Now, how high is the Morning Glory when you get out there? You're flying your ASH-31MI, so you, you fire up the motor, you get out there. How far away from the airfield and at what altitude do you finally put the engine away to connect with so the So it's, um, I should have a little peep at some of my uh, flights and be able to tell you because you've I tend not to look at the instruments on that um, so much. You, you tend to pick it up at a you know 
couple of thousand foot. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at some of the videos, the bottom clearly looks to be not much above 100, uh, 500 foot or so. Okay. Um, but fairly quickly, you'll get up to about 5,000 foot um, above the glory. It's, um, it's, it's quite hard to stay right down on the front of it because the lift's reasonably strong. Huh. Uh, and you'll tend to fly, you know, a couple of thousand foot above it. Um, and sometimes there's like a second glory at higher altitude at 7,000 foot. I've heard 16,000 huh. um, where you can climb up to that one. So you're flying on oxygen as well? Uh, if if that were required, I've, the highest I've been is about seven. Okay, okay. Now, and what distance do you go along the morning glory? I think one of the things is most people tend to fly for the pleasure of flying uh, the glory. I I'm slightly different um, mentality. I try and do uh, big distances and so on and so forth, but. Equally, you've got a problem is if you're going to fly really big distances, you're flying over um, terrain where there's not people for vast distances and you've got, you, you can't just land in the paddock because uh, all the ground there's, you know, potentially uh, mud. Yeah, you'd have um, to get helicoptered out, perfect. you and the glider. But, uh, yes, <laughs> probably so. Yeah, do the Swedish lake retrieve. Yeah, Um uh-huh. But, um, yeah, so you tend to go out and just fly up and down it and enjoy it. Okay. I have heard people that have flown it and then caught uh, thermals once the morning glories died and flown 1,000K. Wow. Um, I did a 300K out and return record attempt. Um, so I started from Burketown, flew out to the glory, um, flew along it, Managed to turn the turning point. It was only, I think, one and a half k off the front of the glory, which was good planning or luck. Uh, then come back. But the problem is, is the glory is coming in at 30 knots. And by the time I got back to Burketown, I was well inland of Burketown and couldn't get back to the airfield without putting the engine up. Right. Um, but, yeah, you could do quite considerable distances if you tried but most of us tend to go out to the glory and then pick it up and then fly a few kilometres and turn around, come back, and you get this tacking track as you zigzag back inland. Um, As I say, you could do big distances. Some people have, but most people just enjoy it. Well, so that's the the main reason. It is such, I mean, I've seen the photographs. It's absolutely gorgeous, and and. I imagine that's why you drove uh, an 8,000-kilometer return trip to go and experience this? Exactly. And the, the morning glory at Burketown, although there's morning glories occur all around the world, uh, it's the only place in the world where it happened reliably over a given period of time. But um, equally, don't assume that you're going to go up for a week and fly it. Mm-hmm. I was there for five weeks uh, and I flew, I think, five morning glories. Wow. So, That's a lot of weight. Uh, three, three of them were in the last four days, huh. <laughs> by which time everyone um, just about had already gone home. I think quite a few went on the Monday, and then I think we had Tuesday, uh, Tuesday Wednesday, and Friday. <laughs> so, wow. I was by myself with um, a 
a guy who uh, was flying a trike. So there's some hang gliders come and fly as well. So is this on every Australian glider pilot's uh, bucket list to go fly the morning glory up there? I think that yes, although I do know some who say I just couldn't stand the sitting out and waiting, waiting, waiting for this thing. Um, But I think there's a lot of people would love to go there, but unless you've got a self-launcher then... um, or a friend who's got a two-seater touring glider or something like that, um, you're not going to fly. Right, 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 right. So, you know, it's all right, put it on the bucket list, but if it's, it's, you know, you've got to put a lot aside to go there. Now, is there a memorable morning glory flight for you that you will look back on? Probably the first one. It was actually a really good one, and I was... um, I had to get back to Perth for a charity event that I run. We play ping pong and uh, raise funds for anti-slavery charities. Hmm. Um, So I had to get there, I think, in September and be back for October. Uh, And uh, most people were flying October. So I was by myself and got a really nice one it's on a video on my um web page if anyone wants to look at it well i will uh, definitely James put up the link on my facebook uh, page for the thermal podcast and then people can go there and have right. a look yeah 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 so and it was a nice one it was well formed and it stretched out for miles or kilometers or whatever nautical miles to fly airplanes um yeah and just spectacular and i was videoed myself in the flight and going, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) not not speaking to anyone. It's just something you did like scoring a goal. Um, And and all the other ones were gorgeous, but yeah, I think there's nothing quite like the first one that you get. You know, I can remember my first flight, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, my first cross country flight and my first morning glory. So yeah, that was probably the best of the lot. Now, James, let, let's switch gears here. You know, you're still flying. You sound like a happy glider pilot, but I understand you've decided to hang up the parachute. What What are you thinking? Why have you made this this life decision? Yeah, well, probably if I went back to why I started gliding, um, I used to do push bike racing and then short track speed skating, and was, I love competition, and I wanted a sport that I could compete in but for the long time because i was beginning to realize when i was uh, short track racing that even at uh, 25 i was getting older and uh, the new blood was coming in and beating me and eventually uh, it was going to be no winning for me although i never really did much winning um and i looked into what sports i should do uh, and motor racing and gliding were two options that I went for and I thought, well, I'm going to kill myself uh, motor racing and it's too expensive. And uh, I made the right decision. Because gliding uh, isn't down. expensive. <laughs> well, not not compared to motor racing. Really? When you okay. keep writing off uh, cars, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and pay thousands of dollars for wheel. I mean, really, gliding is not an expensive sport. Um it's it's somewhere to park your money in a glider before you sell it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, even though my ASH thirty one, um, I 
made the decision to buy it uh, using my money from my super or pension fund, whatever people call it around the world. And I said to my wife, I said, you know, I want to do this. I want to be able to go to the morning glory and do this, that and the other. And I'll sell it for as much as I bought it for, which is exactly what I did. Right. So but all the anyway, pilots who are listening, that's an excellent argument. And that's the same argument I use. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You've got to have the cash up front in the first place. But, you know, if you bought a, an Aster or a Jantar or an NSH31, pretty much you're going to sell yeah, it get your as money much back. as you bought it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, now you, so... You, I'm going to interrupt you just for back. a sec. How, how old are yeah. you right now? I'm 67. 67. Okay, so you're not even that yeah. old. I've flown 42 years, yeah. Okay. And as I say, I flew for competition. Um, I bought a SMD 55 so I could fly um, national competitions and hopefully work my way up. But uh, uh, after two years or three years of um, flying uh, nationals, there was two fatalities. And... I thought, well, I'm not getting paid what Michael Schumacher gets paid, and I'm still not prepared to take the risk, even if I were. Mm-hmm. And I stopped um, that type of competition and ended up flying OLC. OLC wasn't operative at the time, but we did have a decentralized comp, which ran on the same principles. Right. Uh, and I've just loved flying big distances. I worked with Hans Werner's principle you know why you sit on the ground waiting till it's booming and then race to get back on the ground as soon as you can so i'd be launching at nine o'clock in the morning and uh, flying till sunset um flying as big a distance as i could but uh olc came along and that was really great compete around the world and uh, i won a couple of australian olcs but they're hard work Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, you've got to prepare the weather. You've got to go up hoping the day's good, and sometimes the day's great, which is lovely, and then sometimes the day's rubbish. And uh, this enormous effort over a season to do well at that type of flying. And eventually it just got too hard. And uh, last season I hardly flew at all. And now I look at the clouds and say, oh, it's be a, it's as if it'd be a good gliding day, but I don't wish I'm, I'm there anymore. Someone hmm. said I fell out of love of gliding. Wow. Um, and I'll always have something to do. So um, happy to move on. So you're, you're making a clean break. You're not going to instruct or hang around at the gliding club or go fly with somebody else. You're, it's done. Well, yeah, done, done, done. Just have zero, really. I mean, I've got a friend who likes flying around the club's task uh, when we do that. And, you know, just because it's hard work for him because he's had cancer issues, I might fly with him Mm -hmm. uh, just for the pleasure of flying with a friend. But I really don't look at the sky and wish I was up at the club because I just see the two-hour drive there and the two-hour drive back and all the preparation. And I'd rather go in my garage and make my car. So if you had your last flight already, is your ASH-31 gone? It's sold to the CFI of 
uh, Adelaide Touring Club at Gawler. Okay. So uh, he, he looked very happy when I dropped it off on the way back. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, it's gone, and I, I got the money that I uh, paid for it. Nice. Well, that's that's the way to do that. Well, yeah. you know, it's an interesting story that you've told, and then your, your decision to to hang it up. Um, I guess we're all going to get there sooner or later, but your story is particularly interesting because most glider pilots wind up doing it for health reasons. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, someone said to me, um, there's two types of people who stop gliding, those that can and those that have to, and those that can have an enjoyable life after gliding and those that have to are probably very depressed and um right yeah yeah and and many would probably actually end up flying when they should be on the ground you know there's yeah. people who flying for 40 years or so like me you know if i had another 10 or 20 um you wouldn't get tapped on the shoulder at the right time and be told to stop yeah. uh, you'd probably be 10 years in causing other people grief yeah that's interesting well, James, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, and I've really got a great picture of what this morning glory would be like to fly. And uh, thank you for telling us your intriguing story about why you've uh, you know, decided to hang up your parachute. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. All and right. uh, my, uh, my web page is still there. There's a boatload of um, articles that I wrote as a coach on uh, how to fly and checklists and you name it, uh, so they'll still stay on Give my, me the uh, web page. So it's uh, jamescooper.com.au. jamescooper.com.au. All right. I will also put that on the there's, Facebook. There's probably quite, yeah, there's probably quite a lot of stuff there which is uh, getting outdated, um, but uh, I've got other things to do rather than update yeah. my gliding part of the site. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, James, thanks again, and uh, hopefully we'll meet at some point in Australia. An absolute pleasure. If you you come to WA, yes, not a problem. All right. Cheerio. Take care. Bye-bye. James Cooper spoke to me from Perth, Australia. I'll put up some video links of James flying the Morning Glory on the Thermals Facebook page. That's it for episode number 36 of The Thermal. I'll be back again early January with another show that will include a look back at the 2022 Women's World Gliding Championships. I can be reached at The Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's The Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Let me know about interesting gliding stories and I'll follow up. For a number of years, I worked for CBC Radio here in Canada and for a show called As It Happens. Every Christmas Eve, the show broadcasts a reading of Frederick Forsyth's novella, The Shepherd. It's a flying story and will touch the heart of every pilot and non-pilot alike. I'll put up the link on the Thermals Facebook page. It's absolutely worth a listen, especially on Christmas Eve. Thanks for centering the Thermal Podcast. Enjoy the holiday season wherever you are. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe. <laughs>